This podcast is sponsored by the Davenant Institute. Spring term courses begin April 11th. Find out more at davenantinstitute.org and hear more at the conclusion of this podcast. Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count, with Carl Truman and Todd Pruitt. Mortification of Spin is a podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Welcome to Mortification of Spin. I'm your host, Carl Truman, Professor of Biblical and Religious Studies at Grove City College in Western Pennsylvania, here with my usual co-host, the Reverend Todd Pruitt, pastor of Covenant Presbyterian Church, a congregation of the PCA from Harrisonburg, Virginia. Uh, Good to be with you, Todd. Good to be with you, sir. Great to see you again. Um, uh, We were just commenting. Um, I'm wearing a a lovely crew neck uh, sweatshirt, uh, you um uh in a in a in a tie uh yeah which i I guess is a good distinction between you and i yeah it is i mean i I remember commenting to matt Yuzi about 10 years ago i think actually Uh it was when we were driving down to your installation okay uh, he commented that i was wearing a dress dress shoes and a tie and that and i said yeah, funny. I just lost the ability to dress like a slob about ten years ago. You know, I woke up one morning, it was gone. But we're actually uh, actually suffering a bit of a family disaster at the moment. Okay, uh, I forgot to tell you about this before we went on air. But um, well, let's discuss my, it with everybody. Uh, yeah, my youngest son has tested positive for PCA. Would you believe? Really? Did he? Did he? Yeah. Did he actually? Did he take membership vows? He's well. He's on the way. I mean. Yeah, it just shows it doesn't matter how well you bring up your kids. They can go they astray. They can still end up in some bad exactly. I mean, we kept him exactly. socially distanced from PCA mm-hmm. people, <laughs> uh, all that kind of stuff. And and still no. he's he's making the switch. Thankfully, he hasn't got the, the virulent uh, progressive strain. Well, uh, okay. It seems to be a more more traditional form That's, of PCA that he's caught. That's but, acceptable. Uh, yeah, I, uh, you know, uh, I, I only have one son now. It's a sort of, it's one of those situations. It's a Boromir, Faramir kind of thing, you know. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I understand that. Yeah. So, but anyway, talking about the PCA, we have one of our uh, favorite PCA pastors. Uh, Not that the bar is set very high for that particular uh, uh, title, but we have one of our favorite PCA pastors with us today. Hasn't been with us for a few years. Reverend Mark Jones, pastor of a PCA congregation in Vancouver in Canada. And as we were commenting before the show starts, Canada, whatever the problems in Canada, at least it has a reputable and respectable head of state, Queen Elizabeth II. Meaning the queen, not the prime minister. And and when people think about the head of state in Canada, they're thinking Justin Trudeau, you know. Yes. Yeah. But but he isn't. And, and uh, you know, part of me wants to say to you, Americans, you know, how's that revolutionary experiment thing going for you? You know, but, uh, anyway, anyway. Maybe it's run its course. We yeah. want to interview our friend Mark Jones because he is, as many listeners will know, a prolific author, uh, a pastor, and combines his authorship and his pastoral abilities and uh, producing a number of books that have been very useful to the church over the years. One on Christ just a couple of years ago, and now uh, a very nice little volume, uh, Knowing Sin, published by Moody 
Publishers in Chicago. So, Mark, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me on, guys. Really great to be with you. Pleasure to have you here. Tell us, Mark, what inspired you to write this work? Isn't sin a bit passe? Aren't we all really just broken these days? <laughs> yeah. Does sin still translate as a concept to the rising generation of Christians? Well, to be honest, I uh, I feel like it's a bit of a uh, autobiography, and it was a book that uh, not only comes easy because I think we all understand sin in some sense quite well about what goes on in our hearts, our minds. And then we, uh, as a pastor, for example, for 15 years, uh, I've been pretty in tune with uh, societal sins and congregational sins. And then I'm a father, I'm a, I'm a husband. So it just seemed like a good book to, to write. But then, you know, coupled with uh, some of the work I've done on the Puritans in other areas like Christology or the doctrine of God, I was constantly coming across so many um, treaties on sin that they would write. And I thought, you know, I need to get some of this the puritanical like language and ideas out into the, to the pew. And so it was a combination of factors, really. For those of you that have read some of Mark's books, you know, uh, he writes in a very accessible style, which is always very helpful. And I, I was just telling Mark before we came on air, um, I, I received the book in the mail yesterday. And as of this morning, I read the larger portion of it. It is a manageable book to read. This is not a big, thick, scary thing, but it is substantive because of both the topic um, as well as the fact that he that that Mark intentionally kind of takes a, a look at the doctrine of sin in the Bible through through Puritan eyes. And those of you that are familiar with Mark's work, you know that he has done lots and lots of work with the Puritans. And, and again, once again, making it um, accessible. Mark, it was interesting. One of the things that I, I appreciated, one of the chapters you deal with, um, uh, the, uh, the, the, the language of sin that Scripture gives. And you, you show that Scripture gives us this kind of deep and varied vocabulary um, to help us understand the, the, the depth and the nature of sin. And one of the things I was thinking about as I was reading through that chapter and just underlining kind of every one of the different words you highlight um, that, that scripture gives us. One of the things I, I, I noticed because I, I deal with this as a PCA pastor, my guess is that you deal with this at least to a certain extent as a PCA pastor, is the, the trend to treat sin in largely therapeutic categories. And so oftentimes the word um, brokenness is used. Now there's nothing wrong with the term brokenness. Sin causes brokenness. I think we would all agree with that, but, but oftentimes brokenness treated as a synonym with sin rather than one of its kind of derivatives or consequences. I, I wonder if you would just unpack that for a moment in terms of what does the scripture tell us that sin actually is? Well, for me, the the thing that always struck me was, you know, the, well, that, that chapter, I'm glad that you actually liked it because that was always the chapter that troubled me in terms of I thought, oh, are people going to even enjoy this one? It's got so much different um, uh, sort of attacks on the on the word, not attacks in a negative sense, but like, how are we going to understand sin? Is it, it's, mm -hmm. it's Psalm 51. I think I start out with Psalm 51 and, and highlight how David ransacks the biblical vocabulary for sin. So it's my iniquity, um, my sin, doing evil. He was brought forth in iniquity. And 
blood guiltiness, all of those types of words that he uses, it's it's kind of a beyond missing the mark. So I think maybe 10, 20 years ago, we, we were fascinated with sin is missing the mark. Now right. today, brokenness. Yes. But um, I remember listening to Sinclair Ferguson once on Psalm 51 preach, and he said, you know, David's basically just described himself as a moral pervert. And that mm-hmm. struck me. And yeah. it hit me like a ton of bricks because preaching, you know, we're broken versus preaching David as a moral pervert um, wow. is only going to accentuate the, the the power of the grace and how he ransacks the biblical vocabulary for grace right after that. So I think we aren't doing justice to the grace of God when we don't do justice to the language of sin. It was interesting. I was, I was, as I was reading that chapter last night, I was taking down these notes because I'm, I'm, and, and I'm saying this out there for all of you who teach and preach and this kind of thing. I'm, I'm currently preaching through Genesis. And this Sunday, I'm preaching Genesis 34 and the assault on Dinah, um, Jacob's daughter. And, and then Jacob's seeming indifference and then the son's violent, murderous mm-hmm. response. And therapeutic language just doesn't capture what's going on in that chapter in so many other events in the lives of patriarchs and others. It just doesn't capture it. And I was reading that chapter and there's several passages out of it. I'm I'm just going to quote Sunday because as, as I read that chapter, people are going to, to need to hear that that's more than just brokenness going on, that there's real wickedness that needs to be atoned for, that needs to be addressed, real wickedness going on. And so one of the things that I was I was grateful for the book is the clarity that that brings because we are dealing with people every day who see and experience and in some cases commit wickedness and they need to know what to do with it. That raises uh, an interesting question, Mark. You you have a chapter on the issue of total depravity, and I found that in discussion with with people from a uh, certainly from a non-Calvinist and even from a sort of non-Augustinian traditions, the language of total depravity is, is very perplexing to people because they tend to think that it means everybody is, it's claiming that everybody is as bad as they possibly can be. How apologetically do you address the, the lack of clarity over total depravity? You're teaching a Sunday school on this, for example. How would you go about explaining to somebody that the total depravity doesn't mean what the words might hint that they mean when you first hear them. For me, it's it's kind of a double-edged sword, that one, because it, on the one hand, it, it, it doesn't mean, as, as you guys well know, that we are as bad as we can possibly be. But I think I would want to distinguish as um, total depravity is, is typically a phrase that should be used to describe a non-believer, because I think built into it in the canons of Dort, is the idea of total inability. And so sin affects every part of our being, you know, the noetic effects of sin, our mind, but also our bodies have been affected by sin. That's why people die, get diseases. So, you know, the extensiveness of sin is real, but it doesn't mean we are as bad as we can possibly be. But on the other hand, I also want to make sure that total depravity isn't then um, reduced to just, uh, well, every part of our being is affected, but we're not as bad as we could possibly be when we are still really quite bad as non-believers. And even as believers, indwelling sin is still a very powerful, wicked, vile thing in us that can lead us to think and do things that shock us. So it is hard to balance, not to go too extreme with it, but also not to rob it of its uh, extremity. Mark, one of the questions that we get asked 
um, who are in pastoral ministry or who teach theology um, is the origins of sin. This is a, an idea that's perplexed people mm-hmm. for as far back as we can think. And, uh, and not just Christians, but um, unbelievers wondering where we, how these things go wrong and, and, and that sort of thing. And, you, you know, as I think about our tradition and um, our confession of faith, beginning with Westminster Confession of Faith, I think about chapter three and, and God's decree that all things come to pass according to, to, to God's eternal decree. And yet the confession is also careful to point out that that being true, it does not then follow that God is the author of sin. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and that, that can cause some people some real perplexity. I wonder, and, and you deal with this in one of your chapters, I wonder, you know, how do you explain that? In, in other words, what does scripture and our confessions give us latitude to say about the origins of sin and God's involvement? And, and where does scripture and our confession leave us not free to speak in terms of, of answering that question? For me, this is this is obviously a, a you know it gets to so many issues of of the doctrine of God. It gets to the doctrine of the of, of humanity, the will, um, angels, things like that. Mm-hmm. So it is an important question. You know, the unde malum is whence evil? Where did evil come from? And you know, the Reformed scholastics speak about it in a slightly different way than some of the Remonstrants and Arminians of this of the 17th century. So they said that. Adam had a possessed an inclination to vice before the fall, whereas the reformed said that, you know, it, it is inexplicable in a sense, but um, Adam sinned uh, and the internal cause to use the Aristotelian language, the internal cause of Adam's uh, fall was his own free will. Whereas the external cause was the wooing of Satan, the lies and the murdering um, desire of Satan. So um, they bring that back to uh, Satan's fall and why he fell. And Anselm wrote a book on the fall of the devil, really fascinating work on, on why the devil fell. And because of, people say because of pride, which Paul hints at in the New Testament, um, others even got so far as to speculate that he had insight into the fact that the son would be glorified um, as the God man. In, in, and so felt upset over that. You know, there's there all those sorts of things. I think for us as confessional theologians, we, we, we're pretty clear on the freedom of Adam's will um, mm-hmm. for the fall, pretty clear on Satan's role in it. And, um, and then, as I say, I think in that chapter, um, there's still just a mystery as to why someone in such a state would fall. But we do know he wasn't given the gift of perseverance. So God gifted Adam, but not the gift of perseverance. And, um, and I, 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 then I just put my hands up and say, I can't really tell you much more. Right. And I think that's, and, and you do point that out. And I think that that's very important. And one of the ways I've learned to answer that question is, very similar to what I read in your chapter. And to be free, we can say this much, but beyond that, we really can't say much more beyond that because there is some mystery involved in some things that are a little too uh, yeah. too high for us. To what extent, Mark, do you think that the, discom- the contemporary discomfort in some Christian circles with the notion of sin is a discomfort with the doctrine of God's holiness? the shifts on sin are emblematic or symptomatic of shifts in other very important areas of doctrine. That's a great point to bring out because I, and and I think you're right to highlight God's holiness, but I wonder if it isn't just a general 
um, ignorance of God in, in all of his attributes that's left us with an anemic view of sin. So his holiness, it, it shines very brightly when it comes to the relations between human sin and, and the difference of God with us. But, you know, there's so many other aspects of God's being tied to his holiness because of his simplicity that we're so ignorant of that um, even his holiness, we make into our own image a little bit as, as Christians. And so this idea of love swallowing up holiness so that holiness doesn't exist, um, leaves us very casual with God at times. I think it leaves um, me certainly casual with God. So um, I think Owen even talks about how, you know, like we don't deal with God in terms of his absolute essential holiness directly. We would all be consumed in a moment. Mm. And that the only way in which God can really deal with humanity in terms of his holiness is through his son. So that when Isaiah saw God's, in Isaiah 6, John tells us in John chapter 12, verse 41, I think, that it was because he saw Christ's glory. So we can only access God's holiness through Christ. Otherwise, we would all be consumed in a moment. Mm -hmm. And uh, I like that thought in a sense, because it makes God to be the God of, of the scriptures and not my own imagination. Mark, what happens when Christians for whatever different reason, get a very anemic view of sin or a very watered down view of sin. So for instance, there's a very, very well-known uh, PCA pastor who uh, in one of his books several years ago talked about how his ministry in an urban context, uh, they had decided that um, a generation of these young urban professionals just had no concept for things like wickedness and law-breaking, which is astonishing to me yeah, yeah. how anyone could. But anyway, that aside. And so they, they chose to use the language of, of brokenness, seeing that as basically synonymous. Um, I think we would agree that that's problematic. But what happens when um, Christians lose um, a, a, a deep appreciation for, for what sin really is and what it does? For me, my, my, my initial instinct to, you know, whoever it may be that is, it would say something like that, and I think there's, there's probably many as well, um, is that what are you afraid of? Like, really, what are you afraid of in being as grotesque about sin when we consider who it is we serve and, and who Christ is? So there's, for me, nothing to be afraid of, but you lose so much. Uh, I think when Luther's writing to Melanchthon and he says, you know, let your sins be strong. He, you know, he says he, when we use that whole sin boldly thing, but he's talking to Melanchthon about when you actually confess to God, confess real sins. You know, God doesn't save pretend sinners. He saves real sinners, but then let your trust in Christ be stronger. And I think whenever you look at great declarations of God's grace in the scriptures, Exodus 33, Isaiah 6, wherever it may be, um, you find that it's always couched in very strong language on sin, so that to appreciate one is to appreciate the other and vice versa. Yeah. Controversial subject, Mark. Uh, there's a big debate going on in, in the PCA at the moment, and I'm sure it's coming soon to, to other denominations as well, over the, the status of same-sex attraction. Uh, is it sinful or not? How would you parse the discussion. How would you advise our listeners to think about that? Because there is a sense in which there's a difference between thought and action. We know that. Yeah. Uh, and there's a sense in which all of our thoughts are tainted by sin. Mm 
Mm-hmm. As, as we approach this very hot-button topic, perhaps the big topic at the moment relative to sin in the ecclesiastical and the pastoral realm, do you have, you know, without getting into polemics, et cetera, et cetera, do you have advice for the ordinary Christian in the pew who's trying to be charitable, but also to navigate this issue in, in a biblical way? For me, this was one of the main reasons I, I actually wrote the book. Mm. Uh, and it wasn't to, I mean, people have written books on homosexuality and, and so on. But to me, I wanted to give the sort of general principles to how do we even address the topic of sin rather than just a book on, say, same-sex attraction. And I think this is why Rosaria Butterfield said that the chapter on sin's privation for her was worth the price of the book mm. because it helped give the categories for how do we address this? And, you know, it talks about um, privation, the doctrine of sin in terms of privation and positive inclination. And then after that, we talk about how sin is voluntary and involuntary and that really every act, every thought is an act of the will. And we are responsible for every thought because every thought is an act of the will. So narrowly considered, And this is where the Puritans were so good. They had largely considered, narrowly considered. So narrowly considered any unclean thought that is against God's law, we are still ultimately responsible for because it is an act of the will. And you can never say it is not an act of the will. So they distinguish between voluntary and involuntary sins. But there's a sense in which every sin is voluntary because it is an act of the will. And so when it comes to same-sex attraction, Though one may not act out on it, they are still responsible for the affection or the lusting in their heart, which would be of sin and an inward temptation versus an outward temptation. So a lot of the things I try to do in the book is provide categories and distinctions so that we can approach these topics with the right categories rather than just, as I see so many times online, just sort of, well, this can't be right or this doesn't seem fair and and things like that. Yeah, that's helpful. And, and I mean, I, I don't know how things are um, up in Canada on this issue, but obviously, you know, as, as a part of the PCA, you know, um, kind of what's at stake in this discussion. And one of the things that's been amazing to me, Mark, is um, throughout the discussion on the theology of revoice and um, the, the moral status of um, homosexual desires um, has been around this very topic of, of what's come out is, is, is what a weak doctrine of sin we have among so many pastors in the PCA. Mm-hmm. And in some ways it's been a wake up call uh, for that. When I saw several months back that this was the topic of your new book, I immediately thought, oh, okay, we need this. We need this bad actually, because I've heard some well-known PCA pastors say some things about sin and temptation that are clearly not biblical or, or confessional. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I don't write online anymore. I just, uh, just thought, you know what, it's not worth the drama. So uh, <laughs> I stick to books where people can uh, read through them a few times before they, I go public. And, you know, I've been waiting for my moment to sort of try and address this, but it's not in a directly confrontational yeah. way because I've tried every type of approach. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> this yeah. one is, uh, and sometimes the nicer I am, the more upset they get. But I, I think maybe this book, it's, it's long enough so that it's a reasoned argument and yeah. it's, not overly hammering things like same sex, right. but it is anyone reading attentively will see, okay, he's got the categories in place. How can we mm-hmm. now 
look at this from a fresh perspective. And, and I'm, I'm trying to just say simply what I think the church has said for hundreds of years from our best right. voices, not even try to make up a new doctrine. Yeah. yeah. And I would, I would just as a way of one of the ways of commending the book is that if, if you're interested at all in this current debate in the PCA and beyond, this book is very helpful. Not, and as Mark said, he doesn't uh, take those issues head on. He just gets to the doctrine of sin and, and, and that's really where this debate has to go. We've got to get below the surface and the, um, uh, the, 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 uh, the surface emotions of things and get to the theology of it. And uh, um, uh, it's, uh, it's really helpful that way. Before we, um, before we wrap up, I did want to say and ask you about kind of this other project you've been working on as well in terms of Stephen Charnock. Um, tell us just a, a, a little bit about that because it looks really uh, looks like a real beautiful thing you got going there. Yeah, you know, I'm glad my wife's not in the office with me right now because she's, she's seen what Charnock's done to me for a couple of years now in terms of editing this sucker. And uh, it's it's okay. It's going to be worth it in the end. I mean, the work that's gone into it, and I've had some help from some good friends who've been amazing. But yeah, the, the attributes, the existence and attributes of God by Charnock uh, is a book Crossway asked me to edit, and they wanted to really do a great job on making this accessible. But even just the world of Charnock, where he'll cite one name in uh, on a page, and, and we would go and find exactly the book, sometimes even the page number, where he was getting these guys from. And you just see this world of of, of the intellectual world of the 17th century is massive. It really is massive. And uh, I think it's going to be a, a real blessing to the church, just in terms of our ideas of who God is and what it means practically for Christians. So I'm, I'm very excited. I, I hope Carl um, got an email from Crossway because I, to commend it and that he will do the honorable thing. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I owe you one. I've, I've had to pass on the last few. Yeah, just for yeah. time, but I, I've read Charnock already, so there's uh, it's a time saver. Yes, yeah, there one. you go. Perfect. <laughs> Got the email yesterday or the day before from okay. Low, I think. Yeah, well, it, I, when, I, when I saw that, uh, that you had been editing uh, that for Crossway, it was exciting. I, I had a college professor tell me one day to go out and get Existence and Attributes of God by Stephen Charnock, and now 33 years later or so, I, I still have that, I still refer to it. And so uh, be looking um, uh, for Crossway's release of this newly edited version of uh, Charnock's classic uh, from Mark Jones. It's, it's like it, it's, it's leather and, and gold embossed. It costs, I think, like $5,000, something like that. <laughs> um, uh, but no, I mean, it, it's, it's going to be, a, a, in a lot of ways, a real collector's yeah. kind of a, a, a treasure. Yeah. Can I just say that one of the things about Charnock that makes him so great, though, is he would never have written a book with a chapter named after a Lady Gaga song. <laughs> I have to say, I have to say. So, you know. You know, there yeah. is actually a Spotify playlist of my chapters uh, called <laughs> Knowing Sin. So if you're ever on a I, I believe Charnock's withdrawn all his music from Spotify due to Joe Rogan. <laughs> yeah. So. yeah, I think my, my song list may get canceled for very good reason. <laughs> well, um, our guest has been uh, Mark Jones, and uh, Dr. Jones is a, is, a, is a pastor of PCA Church in uh, Canada and, a, and a, a, a rather active author as well. His latest book um, is very much worth getting and reading. Uh, knowing Sin, 
seeing a neglected doctrine through the eyes of the Puritans. The forward is by our friend Rosaria Butterfield. This is a book that would be well worth your time reading for your own enrichment, um, reading as a group together, um, using it as a tool in uh, in teaching. I'm, I'm thankful for the book, and I hope it gets a wide readership. If you'll go to our website, mortificationofspin.org, you can register to win a copy of this new book, Knowing Sin, and uh, we would encourage you to go there, register for a free copy, and while you're there, um, you might want to consider making a little bit of a donation to the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals so that they can continue to provide this sort of content for you. Mark, thanks for being with us, brother. Hey, thank you so much, guys. It was great. Appreciate your work very much. And uh, to everyone else, we look forward to seeing you next time on Mortification of Spin. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. For more on topics like this, visit mortificationofspin.org, where you can find other articles by Carl and Todd, browse the archive of past episodes, and make a donation. We'll talk to you next time on Mortification of Spin. Mark Jones. Hello. From the Great White North. Has has Justin come out to meet the truckers yet? Or uh... Uh, he's hiding in my basement, actually. <laughs> uh, uh, he pays good rent, so you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know the the thing the thing that we can all share is that you know we all have kind of embarrassing national leaders, so. Hey, I don't. I think the Queen is quite a respectable person. You, okay. you for, although the Canadians have the Queen as well. Sort the queen, of. So you, yeah, you, the Canadians get the Queen too. Uh, so actually, it's only true. you who has the embarrassing national. That's, uh, that's okay. Good point. I good point. I suppose. Yeah. Um, yeah. If you want to stretch it that way, but uh, yeah. Nothing has, so. has has made me a monarchist like the last few American presidents. <laughs> The Davenant Institute retrieves the wisdom of classical Protestantism to renew and build up the contemporary church. Through publications, events, and courses, they equip laypeople, pastors, scholars, and Christian educators by connecting them with the theological, ethical, and cultural riches of Protestants' past. Through their online program, Davenant Hall, and their residential study center, Davenant House, they are reimagining theological education, providing two affordable graduate-level degree programs in classical Protestantism. They also welcome anyone taking one-off courses in theology, church history, philosophy, and more. Online classes are taught by expert scholars in two-hour weekly Zoom sessions over 10 weeks from just $149 per class. Next term's courses include the Reformation in the Modern World, Knowing and Naming the Holy Trinity, Discovering J.R.R. Tolkien, and many more. Spring term courses begin April 11th and registration ends March 31st. Find out more at DavenantInstitute.org. That's D-A-V-E-N-A-N-T, Davenant Institute.org, and on Facebook and Twitter.